Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Man, it is good to be back with you guys as we continue through Hebrews as we are in week 19. Can you believe it? Week 19. Let me say welcome to all of you joining us online as we continue through Hebrews. Week 19, this series... uh, we started, you know, almost five months ago, right? And so we're, uh, we're, we're almost there. We're almost to the end of Hebrews, but it will take us all the way up until Christmas time. Christmas is right around the corner. Who's ready for Christmas? Anybody? Wow. Wow. I didn't expect that. You took my speechless. It's, you know, it's September, right? College football just started. We're not even close to being there. See? Even God's, con- he's wondering, Christmas, really, already? So week 19 in the book of Hebrews, before we get into our text this morning, chapter, we're in chapter 9. Uh, if you have a Bible, you want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, if you're new with us this morning, welcome. We are uh, really honored to have you joining us uh, this morning for worship, and uh, I hope and pray that we serve you well. Um, a couple of announcements, one very, very big special announcement. Next weekend, next weekend we celebrate 25 years as a church, amen? So we are going to have one service, and this is really for you guys uh, to hear because next, week, next service will already be here on time. If you come at 9 o'clock next week, we're going to put you to work. Uh, so if you don't want to go to work, then come at 10.30. One service, 10.30. We are going to be out back on the football field under a tent. It should be all of us together. It's going to be exciting. Um, over the years, we've had people ask us for something like this, so we're trying to pull it off. So here's what I need from you. Two things. One, wear comfortable clothing. We're going to be outside. It is still hot and sticky outside, so wear comfortable clothing. Two, be praying this week for good weather. (laughs) Uh, Pray for good weather. Um, So if you'll do that for us, we are going to start around 945. We are going to have some uh, coffee and refreshments, some donut holes, maybe something else for breakfast, and we have some uh, bounce houses and inflatables that will be inside of the student center, so families, bring your kids. Let them enjoy some of that Um, around 1015, we'll be moving out onto the football field. We'll have chairs and stuff. You want to bring your own chair, you can do that. Um, But we'll have seating out there, and we'll have a very special service uh, at 1030. And then after the service, we have a couple other little surprises for you. Um, And you can stick around as well with your kids if you want. The inflatables will be around, and we can hang out and fellowship together. So two things this week. Be prepared to wear comfortable clothing because we're outside. Uh, You might even see us in comfortable clothing because we're outside. Last thing you need to see is a bunch of sweaty people up here um, on stage in front of you. And two, be praying for good weather. 
pray for good weather with us, and uh, we'll celebrate 25 years uh, next weekend. What an exciting time it will be. Um, t- another thing, last beach baptism, um, we uh, continue to hear requests for this. So last beach baptism of this year will be October 2nd. If you want to be a part of a special baptism service out on the beach in the ocean, um, please sign up for that. Join us and celebrate that um, October 2nd. So that's coming up. And then just yesterday, um, out back, I don't know if you were a part of it or not, we had over 300 volunteers come and join Harvest uh, Pack and Century 21 to pack over 65,000 meals yesterday. Amen. Come on. And a lot of those mills will be staying here in our county and the surrounding counties to help those in need. And some of those may be making their way down to Costa Rica to our partner church and in that area as well. So thank you for all that came and served and helped pack so many mills that will help so many people. All right. Okay. Now, chapter 9. As we get into this, last week, Pastor Tyler led us into chapter 9. He explained uh, the furniture of the tabernacle, and he shared a joke with you about rooms to go, and he shared with me that, that he, was, uh, he was excited that you enjoyed his joke, that you responded to his joke about rooms to go. So I'm going to ask you, don't respond to Tyler's jokes. We're trying to remove that out of his teaching, so you're not helping. When Tyler gave me the recap of last week, that was the one thing he really focused on. They really liked my rooms ago joke. So chapter 9, one commentator says this about chapter 9. He says, what is being shown to us in chapter 9 by the author of Hebrews is teaching us that the Old Testament worship was simply three things, a sign, a symbol, and a shadow. And that is what we've been seeing over and over in our time in the book of Hebrews. And it foreshadowed the time of change. And we're going to see that again as we continue in chapter 9. So by design, the Old Testament worship had in it built-in obsolescence, you could say. In this passage, it's called, it's called the first covenant. Now, you don't have a first covenant unless there's a second covenant. Elsewhere, he calls it the Old Covenant. You don't have an Old Covenant unless there's a... There you go. Yeah, it's good. We're going to get there this morning. The point is, the first covenant, the Old Covenant, was designed by God to be superseded by a better one. And again, this is what the author of Hebrews has been trying to show us since chapter 2, that Jesus is greater, that he's better, right? He's been trying to point that out. That's the main theme. So again, if you're joining us for the first time, that's the theme of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is all about Jesus is greater. That's why we've entitled this entire series, Jesus is greater. He's greater. He's greater than anything. Nothing else. Nothing else in the world. No ritual, no religion, no resource, no person is greater. He is the great permanent high priest. And we're going to continue to see that in our text. And so when we get into our text, it's really broken into two sections. The first part, verses 11 through 14, will carry forward what uh, Pastor Tyler started last week as he went through 1 through 10. The second part, verses 15 to 22, and we won't finish chapter 9 today. That will happen in a couple weeks. But it will be bridged by a summary verse in verse 15. And so we'll get there in just a minute. So let's get into verses 11 through 14. The author of Hebrews writes, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, 
not of this creation. Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Don't you just love a section of Scripture that begins with, but when Christ? It's, it's beautiful how we have that throughout Scripture that, that this has happened or this is happening, but when Christ. It, and it, when you hear that phrase, that little three, it's always transformative. It's changing. This is what Jesus has done. Jesus' priestly ministry is what this was all about all along. Jesus is the true tabernacle. As verses 1 through 10 talked about the tabernacle, Jesus is the true tabernacle. The one who became flesh and actually tabernacled among us, right? God with us. So verse 11, notice that he says that Christ entered through a greater tabernacle. And he means that Christ entered into the real tabernacle, not just the shadow of the earthly tabernacle. He entered into the heaven of heavens, into the very presence of God. And that was only symbolized by the high priest entering into the holy of holies once a year. And then he gets into verse 12, and you notice that he says that Christ didn't enter by the means of blood of goats and calves, as, as the high priest had to do to get into the holy of holies. He entered by his own blood, by the shedding of his own blood. He didn't sacrifice an animal. He didn't sacrifice anything but himself. He sacrificed himself. So what is being stressed is that Christ's righteousness is totally unlike our justifying righteousness. He is greater. And here's what I mean by that. I am not declared righteous before God when I trust in Jesus because I am instantaneously made into a perfectly righteous person. Again, stick with me. I am declared righteous because when I have trusted in Him and and in that moment I am united with Jesus Christ and His righteousness becomes mine even as my sin became His on the cross at Calvary. That's where my righteousness comes from, is in that uniting. And so the author is saying, Jesus entered the tabernacle of heaven by his own righteousness. He's the perfect, unblemished sacrifice. His own righteousness. He didn't need to offer a sacrifice. Why? Again, because he was perfect. And as as he's saying this, can you imagine with me, and we've noted this before too, can you imagine the original audience hearing these words? Because this is unlike anything they've ever heard before. They're trying to receive this. This This has never been shared or talked about in this sense. They've always understood it that the high priest had to sacrifice an animal that they declared to be unblemished, right? Which we know it probably was blemished. It wasn't perfect, but in their, in their eyes and in their, in their minds, it was unblemished. And he would sacrifice that, and he had to do that in order to enter into the presence of God. And he's saying, God, God, God in Jesus coming into God, his righteousness, his perfectness is what allowed him to enter. This is so important for us to understand it in our own lives because there is no way then, there's no way then, for you or I to offer a sacrifice to atone for our sins. That's what he's saying. Because sometimes I think it's hard to see the application 
or the work of Hebrews in our own lives because it combines Old Testament, New Testament. But what he's saying here is so important for us to understand for our own lives. How many times have we tried to enter into God's presence through our own means, through our own power, through our own efforts, through our own sacrifice, through the, through the service, even the good things we think that gets us in? It's not going to get us into the presence of God. There is no sacrifice you and I could offer to atone for our sins, which has to be done for us to enter into the presence of a holy, perfect, righteous God. There's nothing we can do to pay the debt on our own. Nothing. Only Jesus. And that's what the author of Hebrews was telling them. There's nothing. What you, what you knew from the Old Testament, what you were given as passed down from your grandparents and generations, all that was pointing to Jesus who secures an eternal redemption. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus disclosed the way into fellowship with God forever. So if the Old Testament Holy of Holies reminded us that we haven't found a way into fellowship with God, right? Because the only person who could go in there was the high priest. Jesus' death reminds us that we have found a way if we believe on him. We, we remember that, that when Jesus died, there's something happened in the temple, right? The curtain, it was ripped from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was exposed. Again, can you imagine what was going on? In the hearts and the minds as they saw, oh my gosh, the Holy of Holies is exposed. All the furniture that Pastor Tyler walked you through, all that's being seen now. Jesus made the way into that place for us. In the new covenant, because we're forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, we don't need a ritual to remind us of the need for cleansing as they had in the old covenant. Because we have found the real cleansing in the sacrifice of Jesus. The true and lasting cleansing. Christ is a once for all sacrifice for sin. Throughout this chapter, remember that he is talking to people who are captivated by the idea of maybe going back to that ritual. We've shared that in the past. That this is, this is what he's trying to do with, with them who are listening for the first time. That don't go back to that. Over and over, he says, that symbolism that you know, that you've understood, that was given, though it may seem great and outwardly and aesthetically impressive, why, right? Because it is outward. People see it. We do it. And it feels like that's the right thing. He's saying, don't go back. It's empty in comparison to the reality of the saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We do this. How many times do we, do we move away from our holding on to Jesus and start holding on to something else? And then when we give that something else up, we think that's pleasing to God. When in reality, all he wants us to do is just keep holding on to Jesus. Because he's a better priest. Because he's greater. He's offered a better sacrifice. And he showed us the only way into the fellowship with the Father. Let me take you back into verse 12. I don't know if you noticed the little three-word phrase there, once for all. And I would encourage you to note that, once for all. The old sacrifices looked forward to a greater sacrifice. That's why they were continually repeated over and over, right? So the author uses this phrase to talk about Jesus' sacrifice. It was once for all. Now, now, none of the Old Testament, Testament sacrifices were once for all, were they? 
If they were, they wouldn't need to be repeated. But they were repeated over and over and over. But Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. Once for all. You, me, are included in the all. Make it personal because it is. Jesus' sacrifice was for you. And it was done one time because it was sufficient. It was enough. It was whole for you, for me, for everyone in this room, for everyone watching, for us once for all. Never, never believe that you are alone or isolated or he doesn't love you because of this little three-word phrase. Write it down. Put it somewhere. Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. On the night Jesus was betrayed, and Luke records this in chapter 22, Jesus at one point during the supper, the last supper, the Lord's Supper as we know it, takes the cup. In fact, you celebrated it last week together. And he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant, right? In what? In my blood, which is poured out for who? You, Poured out for you. And as he's saying it to his disciples, he's saying it to us. And what is it poured out for? It's poured out for the forgiveness or the remission of sins. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying all of those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. And the disciples knew about them. They understood that. They weren't naive to to Judaism. They weren't naive to Old Testament He's saying all those old, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, did they forgive your sins and secure eternal redemption? He would say no. But what he's saying to them, but my bloodshed tomorrow, yes, it will forgive the sins of all, all those who trust in me because it's not just a symbol. It doesn't need to be repeated. It's not just a symbol that forgiveness comes through blood sacrifice that he's doing it is the one and only true sacrifice by which all sins of all people who have ever lived who trust in him are forgiven you see how all-encompassing this is in Jesus own words that's why we sing nothing but the blood of Jesus nothing but the blood what can wash away my sin Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Look at the second half of our text, verses 15 to 22. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive verse 18 therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Verse 21, and in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. 
Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we bridge the first part of our text with the second part here with verse 15, which is our main focus. And we're going to understand with a little more clarity that that the Christian faith is is a faith of the cross. You see a lot of talk in this particular part of the text about bloodshed. It's the faith of the cross where the love of God moved the Father to crush the Son of God for the sins of the people of God. And one of the questions that comes up when we talk about our faith, when we talk about Christianity, and maybe this is a question that you have wondered or asked yourself or or you have had people ask you about your own faith, is why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? It's an apologetic question, right? It's a big question. And I think we find the answer within this part of our text. So go back to verse 15. So Jesus is a better priest because through his death we receive the promises that God made to us to give us an eternal inheritance. It's through Jesus' death that we receive that promise. God made that all the way back in Genesis. If you go back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. He made it again in Genesis 12. He made it again in Jeremiah 33. We receive... Those are the promises. That inheritance is nothing less than an inheritance of everything. Think about it like this. I read one commentary. He he put it like this. He says, Jesus is the firstborn of heaven. So as such, he gets the farm. You've heard that. You've heard that saying before, right? He gets the farm. He gets everything. And what the new covenant does is unite us to the firstborn son, Jesus, right? And so we get the same inheritance he does. Since our identity is now united to his. That is why Jesus can say big, audacious things like he does in the Sermon on the Mount. When he he says, the meek will inherit the earth. God is through this new covenant giving us this inheritance, right? He's given us everything. And what do we mean by everything? He's giving us himself. That is everything. And with him comes creation, right? That is everything. Even if he just gave himself to us, that's enough. Because heaven's only heaven if Jesus is there. What more could we ever want or ask for when you get the creator, when you get Jesus? And so we see our author assert that Jesus' death redeemed, verse 15. Now, redeemed is the language of purchase. By Jesus' death, we're purchased back. From what our transgressions deserve, from what our sins deserve, we're purchased back from that. See, the Old Testament sacrifice didn't work that way, right? They, they made you ritually pure, but they didn't purchase you back from, your trans, from what your transgressions deserve. We know the wages of sin is death. So the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant because his death, not the death of a, a goat or a calf or, 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 or any other type of animal sacrifice, but his death actually, truly, really bought you back from, this, from what your sins deserve. The death of Christ mediates an eternal redemption, verse 12. So you see the connection here. And this redemption secures an eternal inheritance. 
And all of it happens, why? Because of the blood sacrifice of the Son. And then we get to 16 through 18 in our text. And I'll admit, it's a little complicated. It seems a little layered in the way it's given to us and the way it's translated in different Bibles and the way the, the Greek word for covenant is used and it's got two different meanings and we see that. But this is where we see the answer to the question that I think we've asked or we ask or we wonder or have been asked and why did Jesus have to die? So let's take a minute and let's process that for a second because Jesus was fulfilling the penalty that was due to us because we had broken the covenant. Now, we've got to understand what that means to us. How is it meant to God in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, when you make a covenant, there was a ritual attached. So if you were to go to Genesis 15, and we don't have time to break it all down, but in Genesis 15, Abraham asked God, and he asked God, Lord, how do I know that you're going to fulfill your promises to me? How many people, how many of us have asked that? How do I know you're going to fulfill your promises to me? So this is what God said for him to do. He says, take a heifer, take a goat, take a ram, take birds, kill them, and divide the carcasses of the large beasts and lay them side by side. It's almost like an aisle is made, right? And he says, put them side by side and then wait for me. Now, now everybody in the Old Testament would have known what was going on when that was taking place. Everybody from the time of Moses to Jeremiah would have known that God is about to do a covenant-making ceremony. Now, the covenant was made when those animals were slaughtered because the slaughtered animals were a symbol of what will happen if you break the covenant, if you're unfaithful to your part of the covenant. Again, right? If you're unfaithful, sin, sin deserves death. So, in other words, the slaughtered animals pictured the judgment deserved for violating the covenant, and that is what's referenced here in our text. So we understand that the idea of death and inheritance goes just as easily with the idea of covenant as it does with the idea of testament, last will and testament. So both, but the fundamental difference between covenant and testament is a covenant is made between what? Two living people. A testament doesn't go into effect until someone dies. We see a covenant happening all the time in wedding ceremonies, right? If you're married... You have a covenant with your spouse. Two people make a covenant to love one another, to honor one another, cherish one another, as long as they both shall live, right? There are two living people who make a covenant with one another. Testaments don't go into effect until someone dies. But in the Old Testament, if you violated a covenant, covenant, what did you deserve? It was pictured in the death of an animal. And here in our text, the author of Hebrews is saying, let me explain to you why Jesus had to die. He had to die because you broke the covenant. Now, again, remember the original audience. They understood the covenant very clearly, a little more so than maybe we do even today. He said, Jesus had to die because you broke the covenant. We understand that. He had to die because we sin, breaking the covenant. The only way that God could forgive us is if Jesus paid the penalty for that broken covenant. So all the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament were simply what? A picture. And what were they doing? They were pointing forward to the one who was really going to offer the one true sacrifice on our behalf for sin. That's amazing grace. And if we look at Genesis 15, like we've been talking about, 
Abraham himself never walked between the pieces. Abraham never walked between them. Who walked between the pieces? Well, if you were to look at Genesis 15, you would see a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which is a symbol of the presence of God. So God made the covenant. And when God went through those pieces symbolically, he was doing what? He was promising that he would give his son in the place of all who believe in him. And the author of Hebrews is saying, that's why Jesus had to die. You broke the covenant, he died in your place. Doesn't make sense though. That's why it's amazing grace. And then the last part of our text, verses 19 to 22, and we're, again, we won't complete the chapter. There'll still be more to complete in a couple of weeks. But this last part really of the text focuses on the role of blood and the forgiveness of sin. The author's comparing all they know to Jesus' finished work. All they understand, all they've seen, all they've observed, all they've walked through. And he points to this blood ritual did not in and of itself forgive sins. And it's pictured the need of forgiveness of sins and God's provision of that forgiveness of sin. But, it's not, but it was not God's solution for the forgiveness of sin, right? Jesus was God's solution for the forgiveness of sin. That's why the author says to us, as he says to them, it's the, he's a better mediator. He, it's a better covenant, And if I could take us back again to the Last Supper, as we were talking about earlier, that is precisely what Jesus explained to his disciples about why it was on the next day he was going to be nailed to a cross. He took them right back to the blood of the covenant. Now, I didn't point this out when I read it earlier, but when he said to them, as he says to us, this cup is the new covenant in what? My blood. And you can see, compare, contrast, you can see... What the author of Hebrews is doing with his original audience, they knew. I mean, the blood was sprinkled. Our text talks about the blood being sprinkled, not just on the furniture or the book. Did you notice that the blood was sprinkled on the people? That's why we can sing. We're cleansed, nothing but the blood. We're washed white as snow by the blood of Christ. And that's what Jesus was saying. My blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins, We're hearing Jesus' explanation. He's answering the question of why he had to die. He is saying that you are in covenant with God. You violated that covenant. And that violation, you deserve to die. I said to my father, I want to die in his or her place. That you, Father, might be glorified and that they might be redeemed forever. You can imagine that conversation. The son with a father, the spirit. Do you imagine how overwhelmingly divine that love is? I look at myself in the mirror. I know my sin. I know my past. I know my flesh. I think we all do. Can you imagine? And I don't think we can fully just how overwhelmingly magnificent his love for us is that he would pour his blood out and that's what he's saying I know they deserve to die I know they've broken the covenant but I want to die in their place so first of all father you'll be glorified but also so they'll be redeemed forever and will be 
forever together. There is no one greater. There is nothing greater. There is nothing you and I could do on our own to atone to do that. Only Jesus. And so next month when we come to the table, may we remember as Jesus would tell us that we're in fellowship with the Father, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything He's done. He died in our place to fulfill the curses that should have fallen on us. He died the death of a covenant breaker, even though he was the one who was faithful to the covenant. So those who believe in him, trust in him, have faith in him, alone for salvation, might come back into fellowship, reconciled to God. That's, that's where the author of Hebrews is trying to lead his audience and us that listen there is nothing, nothing you and I can do. This is where we see the groundwork laid out in Hebrews for the doctrine of grace. And oh, what a beautiful doctrine it is. Do you know how freeing it is to know that I don't have to work and earn my way into God's presence? Do you know how unbelievable our lives are in, 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 in the understanding that Jesus has done the work. The living hope that we have today, the eternal hope that we carry with us by his finished work, do you know how freeing that is? to love and to open our hands to the things of this world and say, I have something greater. His name's Jesus. And the fundamental point of it is no one can come back into fellowship with God except in Christ. There is no other way because only Christ paid and was able to pay the penalty. He was the only one. None of us, nothing can be sacrificed. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't look back on the old covenant rituals. Don't do that. Don't. They mean nothing apart from Jesus. He's saying to us, don't, don't think that serving in a church, don't think that giving to a church, don't think that being a part of just letting your, you know, your hands and feet, just don't think that that is it. That that's what brings you into fellowship. Those are the outworkings of being in fellowship with the Father through Jesus. Don't get this out of order. So important. And he's saying to us, don't look at your works and your service and your status and your reputation. Don't look at anything but Jesus for your reconciliation to the Father. For your basis of fellowship. For apart from him, there is no reconciliation. And nothing needs to be added to Jesus. Like you don't need to Jesus plus. Don't do that. And if you hear someone telling you you have to do that, don't believe them because it's not true. It's just Jesus. He's the hope. Do you know how freeing it is when you take hold of just Jesus? It's what Paul understood. We look at his life as one of the most freeing lives in all of Scripture. He understood. That's why he could give us 
those, those famous verses that we like on coffee mugs and tattoos and all that stuff, to, to live as Christ, to die as gain and all that. But he understood it. Can we live like that? Can we live in that hope, in that freedom? And the answer is yes, because of Jesus. And from there, he works out of us for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, God, I pray right now if there's someone here in this place or even watching that is trying to earn it, trying to be just perfect, God, that you would work into their heart and their minds that that that's impossible. There is no being perfect, but there is the perfect one your Son and our Savior Jesus, that you would open their eyes to Jesus Christ, that you would show them, lead them to place their trust, not in of themselves or their abilities or their, or their, or their good works, but trust wholly, completely in Jesus. And that salvation would come as they believe and trust. That forgiveness and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit's mercy would come. And they'd feel free. They'd feel let go of the bondage of guilt and shame and the past and the sins that just drive us down. They'd be able to take a breath for once because they would experience the freedom that comes through Jesus. They've experienced the hope that isn't just an eternal hope, but it's a living hope right now that that wakes us up, that gets us through the heartache and the hang-up and the tragedy and the hurt of this world with our eyes on Christ, knowing the promise of being one day with Him where there'll be no more tears or pain. God, remind us for those walking home to you, those beautiful, beautiful promises and truths that are real right now so that we too may go. Be bold. Be free. Walking with Christ home. Inviting everybody we know to go with us. For he is the only way. We pray this in his name. Amen.